This is a Color Pencil Podcast, session number 48. Welcome to Sharpened Artist, a colored pencil podcast where we discuss in detail all things in and around colored pencils and the colored pencil artist. And now your hosts, Lisa Clow and John Middick. Hello, my name is John Middick, and I am joined by my co-host, Lisa Clow of La Cree Fine Art. What's up, Lisa? I Wow, I have nothing to mm? respond to that. There's a barking dog. Do you want to hear about that? Uh, I think I just did. <laughs> <laughs> this is a show about the art of colored pencil where we discuss tips, techniques, shortcuts, and all the nitty-gritty of this medium that we love so much. So, Lisa, what are we doing today? We are answering some of your art questions. My art question? Not your art question. Good. I wasn't goody, talking to goody, you. Goody. I've got a bunch no, of no, no, not you. talking to you. <laughs> All right. So our first question, what brand of colored pencils should you get if you can't afford the best? Do we need to define what the best are? Probably. Um, that's pretty <laughs> what subjective. Are the, what are the For best? Me, my the subjective. best would be polychromos and Luminance from Karen Dosh. And both are fairly mm-hmm. expensive. You're looking at about one ninety three fifty, I think. Right. I guess you can't say about when I go down to the cents, huh? But I think it's not one ninety three fifty for the polychromos and yeah. it's it, you, I think it's two something. It's close to three hundred for the luminance. So it's a big investment. I get that. So we'll we'll right. go ahead and use those as our examples of the best, but most good colored pencils are going to cost quite a bit. I get that. But my recommendation for everybody Save until you can get the better ones. If you're serious about this, don't throw your money away on lesser pencils. It's a waste. You save that money until you can get the good ones. And for I hear this a lot too from teenagers or very very young adults. They're like, oh, but I you know I can't afford this. I can't afford that. McDonald's is usually hiring. Go get a job for a couple of weeks and then take that money to and put it <laughs> towards that. I mean, you can work a part time job for a short short time. And buy your supplies and then quit that job. You've got your supplies now. I mean, that is always Are you a recruiter? No, no. And I hate McDonald's, so that's not – I say McDonald's because I wouldn't be tempted to eat it. Right. All right. Yeah, really good point. I mean, yeah, save up until you can purchase. The other thing is – and you and I have talked about this before, and I think we're both in agreement on this, that the other portion to to this, the other side, the flip side of this question is that – we're assuming that the best are going to be so outrageously expensive that it's cost prohibitive and you're not getting a good value. Now, there's where the difference comes in. If you purchase something that will last a while, and that's what we're talking about when we're talking about stepping up in brands and getting one a pencil that will actually last a while, your tip will not break or dull as quickly, that kind of thing. We're talking about a quality product, then you're not going to be spending that money as often. Yeah. And so is it really they more last expensive? So much longer. And then another yeah. another thing to consider with this, you don't have to have the full set to get started. No. It's right. not the end of the world if you've got less pencils. I mean, okay, 
In my Why life, it would be just the end values. of the world because I want all the colors. But yeah. realistically, you don't need that many. Get yourself a handful. I would rather have a student buy 10 really quality, great pencils than have 50 crappy mm-hmm. ones. Those 50 crappy mm-hmm. ones were a waste of money. Save it and buy the 10 good pencils. And you can buy yeah. most of these open socks. So even if you can't get a full set of any of them, buy them here and there. Just buy a couple here and there as you go. Yeah, you're going to be more satisfied with 20 good quality pencils than you are with 150 that um, are cheap and don't do what you want them to do. It, when you start trying to apply some of the techniques that you're reading about and watching videos on and it's not working for you and, oh, you look and, wow, I cheaped out on my products, that's the reason. And so that's the reason why you want to buy something that you may consider the best yeah. and just go and I down hear, I in see this with the set all the time. I actually had a student last night show up for oil painting and she bought the generic worst oil paint she could find because she wasn't sure if she was going to like yeah. it. Well, I guarantee mm. you're not mm. going to like it with those right. because it's not the same working with some of these lesser art materials. It's not the same as working with the higher quality ones. You're not going to learn the same techniques because they can't do the same things. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And the values, remember people, the values always matter more than the exact color. What is the prescriptive color for this or that? It yes. doesn't matter. It's the value that matters more. Yes, how light that's or where dark you're going to get the realism. Are. It's a funny thing because I always have people on my videos asking me to list out the colors. And sometimes I do when I work in colored pencil. On the right, one that right. I'm currently doing, these flowers, I'm not because I pretty much used most of the colors. That is too many pencils to list out. It'd be easier to list out the ones I didn't use. But the thing is, don't worry so much about those colors. I always kind of laugh because it's like that's not what matters. It's the values. Yeah, and you know, do you have this happen to you? I I have this happen more and more where like like this one piece that I'm working on with trying to get a feel for these Lyra pencils. I I'll spontaneously grab a pencil without because I have the I have the 72 set just sitting out there within arm's reach, I'll grab something. I'll say, ah, I'm not liking this one. I'm, so I notice if I'm starting to press harder, like on a, a blue or something like that, I'm obviously wanting a darker color <laughs> or something, you know? Uh-huh. So I'll just spontaneously grab something and start using it. And if you're trying to write all of that down the whole time, yeah. you're going to forget something like yeah, that. Yeah, and I've actually had, what I do when I'm working on stuff, I will leave the pencils out and I usually put them in a cup or something like that. So I grab yeah. the same pinks, the same whatever. Yeah. Um, I don't want to grab a warm pink when I've been using a cool pink, that sort of right, thing. Right, right. So I will leave them out. Yeah, but once in a while, I'll just I'll just reach over there and think, no, I, w- I want this one. I thought I wanted this other yeah. one. Even after I've tested it on a test sheet of paper, and I'm like, no, I want this other one. Yeah. But anyway, sometimes it happens. What I have, I've had some people ask me in the videos to hold each pencil up as I use it so they can read the mm. color. That video mm-hmm. would be about 20 hours long if I did that every time <laughs> I changed colors because I do it so right. quickly. Like, I'm not paying that much attention. I'm like, yeah, close enough. Yeah, close enough. Yeah, yeah. Plus, I mean, there's something to be said about, you know, the mode that you're in. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you're in create yes, mode. Yes, absolutely. You know what I mean? And there, there's only uh, – writers talk about this a lot of times too. They say there's create mode and there is edit mode. And when you're in create mode, when you're typing out a blog post or something like that, same way with creating art. When you're in create mode, it's not a good time to start editing and start yeah. re- rearranging and all that. You just create right then. When you want to start editing, 
that's a different type of, you know, a different section of your brain. Yeah, you know, definitely. I definitely edit mode, create mode. There's all a mode too. We won't talk about that. But, you know, you want to use that other side of your brain at a particular time. And if you're having to hold up the pencils every time yeah. and show, you know, and talk about maybe the millimeter core on the pencil and all that, I mean, it would break the flow, I would think. So our next question is, which single brand of colored pencil would you recommend if you could only get one? Hmm. What single brand? It's going to be so opinionated. I mean, oh, yeah. that's going to vary from artist to artist. But it, I, I think it depends on the subject matter that you're typically drawing as well. Because for me, I, I love polychromos a lot. But I... I like to do portraits most of the time, and I just I like the colors that are available in the Luminance by Karen Dosh more than I do the Polychromos line. But I love the feel and the texture, um, and just the way that the Polychromos pencils lay down a, a lot more, a, a lot better, I think. Yeah. But I like the light fatness, light light, light fat, fatness, light fastness. <laughs> You're going back light. to McDonald's, huh? <laughs> yeah, I guess. I'll take the Mick light fast. <laughs> um, but I like the light fastness and the feel and everything about the Luminance pencils. Yeah. See, and this, like what you said, it's going to depend on the artist. And the it, it will vary. Using. For me, if I'm doing wildlife, most of the time I'm going to choose my polychromos. Um, just because the little detail and how sharp those mm-hmm. pencils get, and I love those. Yeah. But if I'm doing a portrait, hands down luminance. And that's because of how I blend. While, yes, the colors are a big factor, the way that I blend and the way that I layer, the wax base works better for me for getting skin tones than what I do with polychromos. But that's because of how I work. I mean, the way that I blend with the odorless mineral spirits and the way that I layer my dark colors, and then I put what in painting, we would call it a wash or a glaze, but I put a wash of white over that and then burnish it all together and it brings all the colors mm. together. I mean, the way that I do that, that works way yeah. better with a wax-based pencil than it does with the yeah. oil. So it just depends on what I'm doing. But yeah, for me, it would be wildlife if I had to choose. Polychromos portraits would be luminance. No, yeah, I, I like the wax uh, for portraits because... the there's something about the texture too mm-hmm. that I think it just adds to the realism of of, of skin. Yeah, it's a lot easier. I can just get reason. it so much smoother. And I usually, when I do portraits, yeah. I really like drawing children and getting their smooth, smooth skin because you don't want that the grainy look so much. You don't want it to look like you can see their pores or anything like that. So right. that's the wax base I really liked. All right. So our last question here. How do you avoid glare while working in colored pencil? Now, for me, I work upright, so it makes it a little little bit easier. But essentially, I want my light to be at about a 45-degree angle from my artwork. And Mm -hmm. this is, for me, so much easier to achieve while working upright. When I used to work flat, I had a harder time getting my light in the right position so that I didn't have glare. Well, you're right-handed, right? So okay, so and I am as well. And most of the time, I mean, I th- I think this is pretty typical. You would want your light source to be on the opposite of your oh, dominant absolutely. hand, and that way, that will reduce um, some of the shadow that that you're uh, seeing. But the glare, yeah, there again, I agree with what you said there, Lisa. The forty-five degree angle, I think, is pretty magical. Right in that area, somewhere in that area, you want to angle your light source in such a way that 
you know, you, you know where that constant angle is going to be. I've seen that where students are working flat in class and you can, I, I understand where that glare, if it's an overhead light going straight down on your work, yeah, that glare is quite a bit of an issue. You know what? Let me add this. There, there's something else that I do. I okay. So I have I have a stand up ot light, and I how oh, too long a story. But anyway, I recently it the bulb burned out. I, I bought another bulb. It didn't work. So now I'm one of these type of people that I'm questioning whether it's this new bulb that I have or whether it's the lamp itself. Long story short, I've got a clamp light in the meantime, and I just stuck that over there. I got a daylight bulb, and I got a sheet of paper, a cheap sheet of paper that I put over the clamp light, taped it onto the, the clamp light. Talk about a DIY. That softens the light just enough, and this is a, a, a bright white copy paper is what it is and the light em emanates through that without any problem at all um it got rid of those uh wavelengths that i was seeing in my video i think you and i talked about lisa before yeah were you seeing the yes. those waves that go through your video anyway got rid of that and it also i don't have any glare at all because there's nothing that is it's like a it, it softens the light just enough to disperse uh, that wavelength, I think, to where you're not going to see any glare anyway. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think I could hold it probably at any angle at this point because of it softening right from that source. Yeah, I had to actually piece take a paper. piece of tracing paper and put it over one of my ot lights because it was too oh, bright. See, that would work too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you just have to be careful when doing that. If it's a light that gets hot, don't yeah, start a fire. Yeah, this one isn't because yeah, yeah, yeah. If uh, yeah, you you can't. I'll say this: you probably are not going to be able to use an incandescent bulb to to do that because of the heat. Instead, just use a CFL bulb, and you should be good to go. Okay, so the next question comes from Christine, who writes, I'm having a hard time figuring out how to know what to make my focal point in a painting. I know with people, you've talked about the eyes, but sometimes with landscapes, I'm not exactly sure what the focal point is. For example, if I have a water mill in a painting with lots of water in front of it, how do I make the more distant mill my focal point? Does it matter if the focal point is a rather small square inch of the much larger canvas? This is really a great question. I hate it when politicians say, oh, great question. Great answer. Oh, you know, it really is, though. But anyway, it really is. This is an awesome question. And I'll tell you why. Because this is talking about composition and how to engage the viewer. I really like this. You have total control over, even though this is subjective, there are some things that when you see bad composition or when you see where the artist was confused about the focal point, then it's real obvious to you. And you're like, whoa, what am I supposed to look at here? You know, And, and here's, here's one thing about it. When you notice yourself looking at a painting or drawing or something, some piece of art, and you're not sure what to focus on, like, but but you have an uneasy feeling. You're looking, you're roaming around and looking at it. And you're like, what's going on here? This is too busy. Or what's going on? I don't, I'm uncomfortable about something. Like there's an edge, it's kissing the border of, of the uh, drawing or something like that. Then you know that probably the composition is needing some work. As far as focal point, you know, you, you do have to direct that. And typically, I mean, this is... I'm not trying to be Captain Obvious, but okay, if if you are drawing a portrait, yeah, most of the time it's going to be the eyes. But in a landscape, if you're doing a 
a landscape and you're trying to direct the attention, especially if it's something smaller, then that particular thing needs to have one of two things going on, if not both of these. The contrast needs to be one of the greatest in the in the whole piece at that very point. So there needs to be a very uh, stark contrast in the dark and the light, or it needs to be more in focus than anything else. Everything else can have that bouquet kind of look to it or be a yeah. little bit slightly out of focus or boring in the routine of whatever it is around that thing. There's not as much visual interest. Yeah, and a lot of people seem to think that you need more detail with whatever's closer to you and at less detail as you move back. Yes, that's a common way to do things, but that doesn't mm -hmm. have to be where your focus is. You could decide if you do it well. It's harder to make this look right. I've seen more people fail than succeed at this look. But you can make something if you've got a mill in the background and that's your focal point. What's up close is then going to be out of focus in addition to what's further behind it. So you can reverse that. Again, it's harder to do. But if you look at good photography with that yeah. is taken with nice lenses, it focuses right. on something in the distance. I mean, that's a regular thing to have happen and what's up really, really close is slightly blurred out. If you do that well, yeah. it's a beautiful look. The, yeah, we take our tips and we're inspired by looking at good photography typically. And the, yeah, they're taking advantage of focal length. So they're creating the depth of field exactly where they want it to be. And you can create that very shallow depth of field wherever you want it doesn't like to your point doesn't have to be yeah. right there in the and foreground i've seen it, it done very wherever. very badly actually one of the yeah. one that stands out to me is one of the reasons i decided i was going to become a professional artist when i was 19 there was a lady who was doing these dolphin portraits down by the beach and she had um i say dolphin portraits that's not what it was it was an, just a whole underwater scene she had way more detail in the dolphins in the midground than she had in the foreground but she did it wrong hers what it wasn't blurry it was slightly less detailed but not enough that you looked at it and felt the depth. There was no depth in this. She did not quite understand. It's not just about putting less detail. Usually it's going to be completely blurry, complete, you know, very fuzzy, not just less detail. Mm -hmm. So you've mm -hmm. definitely got to, I would take the time, if that's something you're going to do, take the time and study some photographs and see why it's working in that photograph and look at some artwork that is not so strong and figure out why that's not working for them. Especially if you can find someone like this lady who was attempting, I'm guessing she's attempting I don't know what she was attempting, actually. But that's she, a really good, you know, she she didn't being able to look at that made a difference for me and my art. And it wasn't so much or well, I should say at the time it kind of was I had my I can do that better attitude. But I mean, now when I'm looking at art and I'm judging other artists artwork, it's not about me bashing them or thinking, oh, I'm better than them. It's about figuring out how can I apply this lesson to my own artwork? This is what I don't like about their work. How can I apply that to mine to make sure I don't make what I'm considering a mistake? They may not consider it a mistake, but for me, I don't like that look. I don't want it. So it would be a mistake for me. So how can I apply that to myself? So being able to look at that, being able to study photographs and photographs are going to be easier to study on this because like you were saying, the, the photographers are taking advantage of those lens and their, their focal, their depth of field. So mm -hmm. this is easier to accomplish in a photograph than it is in a painting. But study that, really understand what makes it look more detailed or less detailed because it's not usually just about how many lines there are. It's about how harsh these lines are, how soft it is. So in this case, if you want your foreground to be kind of blurry, you're gonna you're going to let your edges be very soft. The transition from one color to another, very, very soft. You don't want to be able to look at it and go, oh yeah, there's a bunch of leaves. You kind of can't tell what it is when it's that blurry. Right. Now I really like that. I love 
how you frame that, though, Lisa, talking about that is a proper way to compare. Look at it with the eye of, oh, how am I going to uh, change this on my end. You can learn so much from looking at other artists. And if you get the opportunity, well, you can do it online too. You don't have to go in person. But there's an art gallery that I had been to in this area, and they take in artwork from amateur artists as well as professionals. Most of the professionals don't display our work there anymore because they don't take care of the artwork. But anyway, the point is you can look at artwork from amateurs. And it's great. I love that the amateurs are getting involved and getting their work out there and, and taking those steps to learn all of these things. But as a professional, what's helpful for me is just to walk around and look at the art. What would I do differently about that? I know this art isn't quite a strong piece at this point. How would I change that? Not out loud. You don't want to hurt the artist. I definitely don't want to discourage those newer artists by any means. So, you know, keep your mouth shut when you're looking at it, but decide for yourself. I wouldn't have a conversation with my husband or anything and, you know, say it out loud because you never know who's listening. But, you know, consider these things for yourself. That is a proper way to compare yourself. Here's the thing about that. I've heard other artists talk about, oh, I'll never be as good as that. Uh, you know, I, I looked at that. I might as well throw my pencils away, that kind of thing. It's like, you know, yeah, th- that's why that, that old adage is true. Compare and despair, okay? Don't compare and say, oh, I'll never be this good or I'll never whatever. Look at it. Decide. Make some determinations about what choices they made to create that piece of art. Yeah. Then make that comparison to yours to say, this is how I'm going to step it up. This is how I'm going to improve. This is how I'll evolve my work. That kind of thing. And that in in that way, then if you frame it like that in your mind and you're thinking, I'm inspired by this because this gives me hope. I know how I'm going to change mine for the future and what I want to achieve. This is a goal of mine right here. Yeah, one of the biggest disservices that I think that people give as far as advice to other artists is tell people, never compare your art to another artist. Well, that's great advice if you don't want to improve. Um, I mean, you want to find find artists who you look at and think, that is where I want my artwork to go. Several years ago, when I was really focusing on pet portraits, I was drawing graphite portraits, and I would spend, I don't know, maybe half hour, an hour tops for the entire portrait. They weren't huge portraits, but I mean, point is, no portrait is going to be that good in that amount of time when working in graphite. So, I mean, they were okay. They were drawn accurately, but they just, something was missing. And so one day I was looking through another, you know, other pet portrait artist sites and I came across a lady, I believe she was working in pastels and her portraits looked like photographs and it was amazing. And I was just like, Okay, what is why is my different? I'm not going to sit here and kick myself. I'm what is mm-hmm. she doing? There's no reason I can't do it. I just have to figure out yeah. what's different from hers than for mine. What am I doing differently? Where can I improve? And that decision, looking at it that way, made the biggest difference. Yeah. I went from having these kind of cartoony, not very realistic portraits. My next portrait, after studying, I maybe spent an hour, two hours studying the differences, did my next piece, put eight hours into it instead of my normal 30 minutes, you know, an hour. And it looked like a black and white photograph. It made, you would never guess it was the same artist who did those pieces. And the difference was, I took the time and figured out what was better about hers than mine. What am I doing differently? What can I change? And it every time I've done that, where I've taken the time in my work to figure out what is different about mine versus somebody whose work I like more, there was a huge huge jump in what people Mm -hmm. would perceive as my skill level, but it was more that suddenly I understood something I didn't understand before. 
Yeah, see, you were making the uh, a comparison. You were looking at it in the right way and framing it correctly. I, I think it's a well-intentioned saying uh, often when you hear people say, oh, don't compare yourself to others. I think what they're meaning, though, and I think that's what you drew out of that, is that they're talking about you don't you do not do that compare and despair. Yeah, you don't say, oh, I'll never do that good. That it's, doesn't yeah, do Yeah, good. the intention has everything to do with yes. it. Yes. All right. So one other thing I wanted to touch on quickly then with regard to this question is the idea of composition. That, you know, I, I just feel like that this is something that we as artists should never stop studying. I think this is something that we can always improve on and we can always learn more about it. Absolutely. Now, I'm not real big on – I've not done a whole lot of landscapes, but it is something that I want to do, it's something I'm very interested in. And I take a lot of photos of landscapes so that I have some reference material. But i got to tell you, it it's such a different ballgame than just doing a still life or um, a – you know, where you control the composition so much more yeah. uh, right there yourself, manipulating it. And portraits as well, but I mean, with composition, you know, you there's there's so many little things that just having the, the a knowledge base, you know, there's something in your toolbox that you can know and understand and reference, even though you may break some of those rules from time to time, it just puts you ahead of the game and gives you a greater understanding of what you're going to be able to create, how you're going to be able to approach a particular subject. I mean, we've all seen landscapes that just bore you to tears. You know, you look at it and like, okay, that that was the most boring thing I've ever seen. And then we've seen some that are just so extremely complicated and beautiful. And is this question, is it framed around landscapes? I can't even remember. I thought it, okay, I thought it was. And I mean, and so that, that's one of the things that we want to think about when we're doing a landscape, create that visual interest by varying some of those horizontal and vertical lines. That's what landscape is. Yeah. I mean, you've got a lot of horizontal and vertical lines. And so you have to vary that. And these, these are organic shapes. And so you don't want any of these looking like geometrical images. If you're going for realism, you want to create the visual interest by breaking up some of the larger blocks as well. A good study of that kind of thing, uh, I think, would take us a long way. And I think somebody who is wanting to perfect their landscape compositions or, or just landscape paintings or drawings, I think what it would work better with somebody trying to study composition if they're a landscape artist is they need to probably think more about – study more about landscape composition more than looking at books on – most of the books that I see when they talk about composition, most of the time they're looking at a still life. Well, that's yeah. not going to help you as much when you're looking at a, a landscape. And so try to get some materials where they're talking about composition in a landscape. Yeah, and, and I think that'll help you a lot more. One thing that you can always do that I think is so helpful, and if you guys haven't done it, no matter what style you are working on, what subject matter – Understand the rule of thirds. Now, that doesn't mean you have to yeah. always stick to the rule of thirds, but understanding it really can, if you're running into a problem with your design and you're like, something isn't looking right, so often if you drop the rule of thirds over it, I drop it into it in Photoshop and look at it, you can adjust, make little adjustments, remove, you know, make it line up with the rule of thirds, pull that out, and suddenly everything can look so much better. But that is, mm -hmm. for composition, like my biggest tip for people, 
study the rule of thirds. Have a general understanding. That doesn't mean you always have to follow it. Sometimes it will look better if you break that rule. But more often than not, things really do look good if you can kind of use that as a guideline. Now, what about the golden ratio? I do like that yes. one as well. Yeah, that's another Some one of the, look up. Yeah. Now, the, the rule of thirds, sometimes it's just plain silly. I mean, yeah, I think you'll agree with work. that. It, it when you really when you see what some of the well, I mean, when you see the application of it, sometimes someone will say, "Wow, and here's the rule of thirds right here," and you're like, "No, that did not <laughs> even work." But you you've got to go kind of with your gut a little bit. But yeah, they're guidelines. Ever, they're not things. Yeah. It's not math. This is not a right or wrong answer. But there is something about. I mean, just like looking at some of the Renaissance painters, if you look at some of the curves that they achieved, just like what some of the historical paintings and biblical paintings that they've done. And you see a curve and you see movement in their drawings and they don't look rigid and stiff. Just that alone, just trying to create movement mm-hmm. with curves in the bodies and in the um, the composition of like the hand gestures and things like that. It just creates a lot more interest. Yeah, absolutely. And if you've ever seen something that is just real stiff and boring... Uh, that a lot of times is the reason why, because there's not an expressive movement in the subjects. If you would like to submit a question for Lisa or me to answer on an upcoming show, you can uh, submit that over there at sharpenedartist.com slash Q&A. If you would like to continue the discussion of anything that we talk about here on the show, you can do that over on Facebook in the Colored Pencil Podcast group. And if you have a moment, head on over to iTunes and provide us with a a rating or review over there. We would really appreciate that. And if you want to leave us feedback, you can contact us at podcast at sharpenedartist.com. And we will talk to you guys again next week. See you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. All the show notes can be found at www.sharpenedartist.com. That are, you know, to look at it, I'm, what I'm trying to say is, let me start that over. Good grief, that was horrible. <laughs> I, I just like that because I stopped a second ago. Someone's using a mixer in the other room, sorry. Um, it, it picks up in the audio. Um, so...